The reading, the reading is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 20 to 39. Uh, and it's part of the account entitled, Elijah on Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two sears of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it for the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Here ends the reading.
So last week we uh, began the story of Elijah. We're in the 8th and 9th century BC. And there was a king of Israel called Ahab and his wife um, Jezebel who were seeking to make Israel religiously diverse, particularly spreading the worship of Baal. But things have got really difficult because there's been a drought for three years now that Elijah had come to prophesy. And things are getting really desperate In the beginning of chapter 18, where we are now, Elijah shows up and says to Ahab, meet me on Mount Carmel and we'll see who who is really the true God. Now, it's that classic kind of challenge that's laid down. And in many ways, we live, I would argue, in a time of similar to Elijah, where there are many gods, there are multiple faiths. And the question is, How do we know what's true? How do we know what's true? Right at the beginning here, we'll say at the beginning, is Elijah says, let's have a contest. Let's have a contest to see which God is real and true. So if you notice in verse 21, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, it says, how long will you waver between two opinions. There's various different translations, but if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Interesting. So the average person, when you maybe end up in a contest between two people, says, well, do you know, why do I need to decide which one is right? And which one is wrong? Do you know, aren't religions all basically the same? Have you heard that said many times to yourself? Yet Elijah literally says to them, Why are you sinking between two thoughts? Why are you sinking between two thoughts? So if you're on one side, that's a good place to stand. If you're on another side, you're anti, in a sense, that's a safe place to stand. But if you're neutral, if you're sat there saying, well, I think religions are all basically the same. There's good in all of them, isn't it? What Elijah's challenging them to say is, that's like a swamp. It's like a swamp. Because you end up being confused on so many different levels. And if you had time, there's so much in here to look at about that. And i just briefly like to say a couple of things. When you hear people, and it's very common in our current culture, where they say, do you know, all religions have good in them. They're part of the truth. No religion sees the whole truth. Essentially, when people say that, what they're obviously saying is that they have a superior view than your view of religion. They have a complete picture, while yours is somehow deficient. Now, the thing this morning is this. Christians are dogmatic and clear about certain things. But a person who says religions are all basically the the same is being just as dogmatic, except they're not actually owning up to it. They ultimately believe that their view of the truth, that all religions are good, is superior to your specific belief in what you believe in. And the reason this view is so prominent today 
pretty much wherever you go, is because of actually the issue of tolerance. Because actually in tolerance, you know, how are we going to get on with all these different people who have different beliefs and still exist in community together? We've got to find a way of saying that they're basically all okay. But that's not true. It really isn't true. That view, that particular view, is actually extremely violent to specific religions. It's actually a very violent view to the Christian religion, to actually to Islam and to the other religions who believe specific things about who God is. Why? Because it actually refuses to listen to what that religion or to that people actually say about themselves. It's actually incredibly intolerant. To give you an example, a vicar friend of mine was quite bright and he spent a lot of time in discussions, multi-faith discussions. And he was in a discussion with a Muslim cleric and a, a humanist. And this humanist said, well, you know, I basically think both of your religions really are about loving God and loving other people. That's what it's about. The vicar and the Muslim looked at each other and said, well, actually, the essence of Islam is that there's no visible representation of God on earth, the cleric said. God is invisible. But the essence of Christianity is Jesus Christ is the very image and representation of God. The Muslim and my friend sort of said, you know, we might both be wrong, but we can't both be right. You know, we can't both be right. And the humanist said to him, no, 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 you're not listening, you're not understanding. The essence of Christianity and the essence of Islam is love God and love your neighbor. And the vicar and the cleric just looked at him and thought, this guy, in order to believe that all religions are basically alike, could actually refuse to actually listen to what they actually said in the name of tolerance. In the name of tolerance. Actually, the most intolerant way of looking at it. So Elijah, right at the beginning, and the reason he's saying this is that we're going to have to decide, otherwise you'll sink in a swamp. What's true, what's false. Otherwise, we'll just be confused. So secondly, how do we know if you're worshipping a false god? The second part of the narrative, if you've got it in front of you, in verse 26 See, the prophets of Baal, Baal begin their religious activities. In verse 26, then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced, and then they said, and then Elijah says, What's the matter? Why aren't you getting an answer? How bold is Elijah? I mean, it's just ridiculous, really, in so many ways. So what did they do? They shouted louder and louder and louder, and with their swords and their spears, as was their custom, they let their blood flow. Wow, what a picture of Baal worship. The word Baal is actually a generic word for any god, and there was a rain Baal, and there were actually many other Baals, and they worshipped pretty much everything. And our response to this often, when we look back, is to say, oh yeah, but come on. These were primitive people. 
These were primitive people. Yet, I'd suggest to you today that they admitted, these pagans, as we often call them now, admitted things we don't, which is they know that all of us worship something, that everybody is under the power of some things, and I would say the spiritual power of some things. Let me give you a quick example. I don't know if you, for example, if you go to London and you're on the underground and you look, you're bombarded by images from uh, pictures of marketing, pictures often of beautiful thin women, of great holidays, of amazing products. Over and over again, we're bombarded by pictures. And the pagans understood, what are those pictures? Those pictures aren't just giving you information. There's a power to them. There's a power to those pictures because they shape our desires, they shape our imaginations, they shape our priorities for good and for bad. There's a spiritual power to them. And the thing is this, is when you take any created thing and you make it the thing that really is the thing that's going to make you happy or significant or acceptable to other people, it becomes a Baal. And you get to worship it. You get to worship that thing that becomes the center of your life. And I would argue that the pagans were honest about that. That's why they had a temple for virtually everything. Everything can be a Baal. Your career can be a Baal. Your family can be a Baal. Your children can be a Baal. The environment and your concern for it can be a Baal. My love of sport can turn into a Baal. A love of culture can be a Baal. Physical beauty, our lifestyle, our reputation, anything can become the thing that ultimately you worship. And the mark of Baal worship and to know whether you've got a false god in your life is that you get into works righteousness in which you and God change places. That's how you know you've got false gods in your life. Look at what goes on in the Baal worship here. They dance. They perform for God. They've got to show that they're worthy of their God. They don't go before their God as friend. They don't go before their God in a relationship with their God. They've got to impress their God. You work for righteousness in this religion. You dance as well as you can. Not in celebration like David, but you dance to be acceptable to God. See, in Baal worship, what happens is we switch roles. You're the one who's wise. We're the ones who are good. We're the ones who know what we need. And God is the one who's distracted, asleep, slightly cantankerous, or you know, un- unable to anticipate. And the thing this morning is this. You know have idols in your life. When you perform and when you can't get what you want, what you need, you go to more and more extremes to get the God's attention. 
you start to slash yourself. How horrible is a picture. It's given me so much to think about in this passage about our current culture. You know you're worshipping a Baal or a false god when it's all about your performance. So how do we find the true God? Really simply, the only answer is by fire. What we have here is a lightning contest. However much we've studied and thought about God and rationalized and intellectualized our faith, at some point, at some level, in some way, God has got to come and send a thunderbolt down into your life for it to become real. Remember, they've had three years without water. Have you noticed that when we go through life with a constant sense of success, it can end up confirming us in the things that we worship and in our own idols? You know, I've been there before. You take credit for your successes. Well, you know, I'm actually quite gifted at this. You know, actually, I've done it. We take the pleasure. We take the glory. To get your attention somehow, God has got to come and intervene. Often it can be difficult to get dragged. It's not always like that for different people, as we've talked about briefly here. But at some point, the fire needs to come down into your life. In Luke 12, Jesus uh, is talking. He talks about, I've come to be baptized with fire. Just If you have time, go and read that kind of section of Luke's gospel. And Jesus Christ ultimately went to the cross so that you and I could have the fire of God's power and God's love flow into our lives. And we need to receive the true fire of God. Elijah prays. He baptizes this sacrifice with water. How bold is that? Then the fire comes. Then the fire comes. It's a beautiful picture if you take time to think about what's going on here. And let me put it to you this morning as we come to take communion together, which we'll do in a minute. Do you know, every other God at different levels says, sacrifice for me, slash yourself for me. But here's the one God, the one God who saw us in our broken, fragile, sinful state and said, I'll go to be the cross, I will take, go to the cross, a God who would be slashed for us. It was God's blood that ran so we could be free. We could be cleansed. We could be forgiven. We could be put right with God. So this morning, I'd encourage you, if you want to be free from some of the power of the idols in your life, then actually communion is a great place to come. Because it's a place of celebrating Jesus and all he's done for us. And a place to find freedom and to find life again. Ultimately, it's through the blood of Christ. Do you know, it just won't work. And I have tried many, 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 many times in my life to say, do you know, if I work really hard, I'll get it right. I'll do well for a while then it starts to go pear-shaped. Only Christ, who's completely done it for us, that will be enough. Trying to just do well, trying to work hard, it's stoicism. And ultimately, it never works. You need the fire of God to come to give you the power to overcome those things.
If you'll forgive this one slight detour. Um, in 2016, just before I came here, um, I had the privilege of going to Israel. Um, and this is actually a picture with me and a group of Pentecostal ladies, black Pentecostal ladies who tripped around Israel for kind of a, a week. Joe thinks it's one of the funniest things uh, that I've done. Anyway, for a week, we went around Israel. And on the last day of this trip, we went to Haifa, which is on the coast, um, which is actually where Mount Carmel is, where this story is set. And we spent the day on this last day in uh, one of the Messianic, if you move on for a second, uh, Brian, uh, in a Messianic Jewish um, community on the top of Carmel. And you know, we were a bit enthusiastic, and the people with me were very enthusiastic, I would just like to add. And we were, you know, having a good time, praying, worshipping, and obviously praying that God's fire would come afresh. You know, we need to see God's fire in our generation. You know, and this isn't just a historic story. This isn't just one dramatic thing. It's a, a, a picture of what God wants to do. And so we were praying all this, um, came to the evening. And as I, we got on the plane on that evening and head off, headed off, literally the day after, there were fires in Haifa. Actually, Haifa was set alight. Now, nobody was killed. It's all right. I can kind of just say that. But that story made me wonder about the people I was praying with. <laughs> because I was thinking if God was going to send a different fire. That God, that God would pour his spirit out again. That people would come to their senses and see the goodness of God. See Jesus for who he is. But actually... Haifa was actually set alight. It turns out it was vandalism rather than our prayers, just like to add. But the thing is this morning is this. If you read the Catholic scholars, Teresa of Avia, John of the Cross, or you read Wesley, they said something that, that about the central experience of God's love for Christians. Ultimately, at some level, it feels like a fire has come down into our hearts feels like there's a fire at some level in our chest. You sense that God really does love you. You are acceptable to God. And we know that and we experience that in and through Christ who set us free. As we come to the table today to celebrate all that Jesus has done, I wonder whether you could just, we can in a moment, just before we do that, just going to take a moment to pray. And I wonder whether you would just ask God, in the silence of your own heart, to say, are there any things in my life that have become places of worship that I need to get free from? Things that are too big, too important, that I'm spending all my life trying to serve. Things in your life that ultimately are bigger than God himself you're worshipping it and actually it's driving you nuts and it's an opportunity to just confess that that's got too big a place and bring it before God and ask for God's forgiveness and his cleansing and his freeing from those things I don't know what those things are for you but there will be things let's just take a moment to do that then after that I'll simply pray that God would come afresh upon us with the fire. And I know some people have a very dramatic story of God revealing himself. Some of you feel, oh, I've never had that experience. But we're just going to quietly pray that God would come afresh upon us. So let's just be still. 
in the quiet, wherever you are, just to ask God to show you anything in your life that you need to confess that has become too big, too important, and has taken his place in your life that he wants you to be free from this day? Heavenly Father, we thank you as we come to celebrate this meal, this simple meal of bread and wine, that you are sufficient for us. And we pray that in the power of Jesus' name and in the power of the cross and the cleansing of your blood, that you would set us free as your people. That we would experience the freedom that comes from being, set, um, from being delivered from those things that consume us, that we spend all our lives trying to please. And it's driving us into the ground. Forgive us, Father, for putting other things in your place. And Father, I pray too that would you, by your Spirit, would you come afresh upon us. For those of us longing to experience more of you or maybe to experience it for the first time or feel like it was a long time since God drew near and showed you the fire of his love in your heart. Holy Spirit, would you come down afresh upon us? Would you reveal the depth, the height, the breadth of your love for us? Would you set us free from some of the rejection that sits over our lives so we can receive your love for us? That somehow we've got to earn your love rather than simply receive it. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.